Welcome to the Five Phenomenon Podcast. I am your host, Shane Hayes, and coming up on today's episode, Tim Lucas, uh, founder of Video Watchdog Magazine, which is now being published online. Um, notable film critic and film scholar. Um, he has written many books, uh, fiction in, in both film criticism, most notably Mario Bava, All the Colors in the Dark, which is a mammoth volume. Uh, for today's episode, the interview went so long, that this, this episode is being divided into two parts, and uh, enlisted... Uh, for this episode, I got co-host, uh, former guest of the show, Ted Haycraft, and hopefully he'll be on a few more episodes in the future. Um, also, technical note, um, for those of you who don't want to listen to the blabber at the beginning of what I just watched this week, uh, as they call, I've heard it called in podcasting world, um, the Marin Open. Um, I went ahead and, li- and just here for the interview. Uh, I put uh, the timestamp on when on in the, in this episode's description of when the actual interview begins. So if you want to skip ahead, feel free. I don't have any advertisers right now or ever. So, um, but first off, what I watched this week. Um, how was you guys this week, huh? Yeah. Um, I earlier this week I went to the theater to see um, the uh, the way back the Gavin O'Connor uh, Ben Affleck sports movie uh, and. Uh, for starters, Gavin O'Connor holds us like this movie embraces every single cliche, uh, sports cliche, sports movie cliche, and uh, addiction movie cliche. But damn, if Gavin O'Connor doesn't just consistently make like satisfying movies, like like this movie, like I I heard it said by someone else, this movie the way it addresses its cliches is it just keeps walking through them with shoulders high and and. There's some interesting stuff well, alongside, you know, Ben Affleck break, drinking like a 36-pack of the same beer brand throughout the entire movie. And, but um, the, that, unfortunately, is probably going to be my last theatrical sc- uh, screening for a while, feels like. Um, Showplace Cinemas hasn't closed down yet, but uh, IU Cinema and Velcourt uh, both shut down for at least a month. Um, so uh, I'm shooting like the best of you are hold up your social distancing. Um, we're watching a lot of stuff at home. Um, the, I made the mistake of following the iTunes trend and watching Steven Soderbergh's 2011 uh, epic Contagion. And that was a mistake. Um, m- mostly because, like, you know, there's been some different mortality statistics, but I think the South Korean mortality st- statistic for coronavirus is like 0.6%, and that in Contagion has 30%. So, after a certain point where it's neat, there's the parallels. They, they talk about not touching your hands, uh, washing your hands, and uh, you know social, social distancing and things like that. And they get across stuff like that. Uh, the movie is, is not going to make you feel good. It's, it's in, in current times. It's not, it's, re- it's I don't, don't want to put out a prediction, but I don't think it's going to be that bad. Um, or it's, yeah, I'm just, making a soft prediction just putting that out there um it was funny because at the time when contagion came out you know i was expecting this big globe trotting epic uh, i saw it on imax screen in austin and at the time i was editing uh for terrence malick on uh, to the wonder and when you edit for a director you uh you develop a lot of their instincts like for the time and um steven soderbergh shoots on the, a lot of digital stuff you loves the red camera and he's shooting an IMAX level movie, 
uh, he always shoots a lot of uh, low depth of field stuff. It's in, I love it, but at the time, that's not where my head was at. Uh, I, you know, Terrence Malick's films within every, every detail in the shot with a lot of wide angle lenses and everything's uh, very uh, deep focused in there. And so I just remember thinking it was a cheap epic at the time. I will say the movie's better than I remember. A lot of good performances in there, but, um, but coronavirus, uh, this is unprecedented times. This is just bizarre. It's, um, the, the box office this last weekend supposedly was the lowest in 22 years. You know, um, the theaters right now are committing to like 50%, uh, of, of, um, filling up their auditoriums. A bunch of theaters are doing, besides the ones that haven't, are closed. And who knows how long it's going to be before eventually they, they do close for a few days. And I mean, it's, I mean, I'm wonder, I'm tr- cu- I've never read anything, but I'm curious if there's any studies of what happened in the Spanish flu in uh, 1918 with movies. Because obviously that was a period where, um, fe- you know, features were gr- still growing and there's a massive upward trajectory through in the silence. But I've never heard, like, what happened with ticket sales then. Where pe- I mean, there were people that were, that were keeping to themselves and quarantining then, right? And, um, but it's also just... I'm fortunate as an editor. It's easy for me to work remote, although they don't typically offer it, and it's something you have to, you know, develop a reputation with this, or a, a, a relationship with somebody. Um, so I'm not necessarily getting a lot of gigs for that, but set people, every movie shut down. Like, as, at this speaking, I think the only thing still going at the major studios is, like, Matrix 4, but they just announced yesterday the Batman shut down. That was a holdout. Uh all these movies getting pushed back. Marvel's still sticking with Black Widow for now, but who knows how long it's going to happen. Mulan's got pushed back. Um, it's, this is just unprecedented. Does the economy just pause? Like, what is... It's bizarre. So... On today's episode is film critic and historian Tim Lucas, and to help me out with this episode is uh, his friend and uh, former guest and future co-host of the guy, Ted. The plan's always been that you're going to host a few episodes with me, so... Hopefully a few, or or more than a few. Tim Lucas um, was kind of one of the first people that wrote about um, when VHS was getting big. He was one of the first people that wrote about um, not just the movie itself, but the presentation, things like when Pan's, you know, Pan's Scam was still prominent, or and this thing that morphed, and especially whenever the DVD boom happened. And no, the great thing about Tim, uh, and I think you'll hopefully, uh, he's very articulate, and uh, I quickly became one of my favorite writers. Uh, uh, Danny Perry, he wrote the cult movies, and. Uh, and then we're currently Clint Glenn Erickson DVD savant or son of a cine savant or cine, I don't know he has changed his name from uh, DVD savant but anyway I'm rambling here but as as I usually do but uh, Tim is a very interesting person because he's he's a historian he's a critic he's written screenplays he's dabbled uh, uh, in comic books and, and now even music and he does wonderful commentaries and uh, so there's a lot to talk about so we we could have kept on talking all night. We did cut off after a while. I think you're going to make a two-part episode. In fact, yes. We went so long that uh, this is now a two-part episode. But I think when uh, I met Shane, was I already talking about Tim when, I, when you first met me? 
the, uh, I can't remember. Uh, because I love Video Watchdog. Video Watchdog. You talked about Video Watchdog. It was my Bible. It was, you know, over sight and sound, over film comment, over anything that was coming out on uh, any magazine, whatever. Uh, Video Watchdog was the magazine to have. And it, 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 it was mostly genre, mostly horror and fantasy, but they read Tate or Kozlowski in it or uh, as we talk about later he's yeah. a good he's a good bridge between high uh, high and low but right. people don't make distinctions between higher and low art too and just to say you know Quentin Tarantino puts uh, copies of the magazine in uh, Death Proof if you if you look closely on a newsstand and different places yeah so without further ado here's Tim Lucas <laughs> I, were, I, I just left the television station. I left work today, and we, we're doing a whole hour-long special. Uh, telling oh, you, yeah? Yeah, I'm sure to put fear in the tri-state, you know, here in Evansville. Local, are you trying to say local news journalism is uh, <laughs> spreading fear in the wrong places? Oh, no. We never do that. Uh, but Shane, uh, this is Shane Hazen. No, that, that's the government's job. <laughs> it's true, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, this is this is uh, good buddy Shane. And, Hi, Shane. And he... Uh, he uh, he's he's got some interesting uh, stuff that's happened. But I met him. We were writing for the new uh, same magazine that what passes for an entertainment magazine here in Evansville. We were both writing for it. And he's a very, he's how old are you now? Uh, thirty eight. He's thirty eight. So he's this little twerp that was writing. And he was writing over my head. So I was like I was like who is this guy? Who is this Shane Hazen? And then you were, you started writing early at an early age too, didn't you? I was fourteen. Uh, this was like 1971 or two, was, uh, I think late 71. Was this the Cinema Fantastique stuff? I started out writing for my high school newspaper. Same here. And uh, then, I mean, I, it was when I was uh, a freshman, I went into orientation the very first day when we went in there as, as uh, junior high graduates into the high school and uh, there was, uh, you know, the class president of, of the school, the student uh, of the student council, president of the student council, his name was Randy Parsons. And uh, he uh, invited everybody to get involved in high school. He, he made a big pitch about everybody to get involved in whatever they were into. There was a group there that would help to foster their, their interests. And as he was leaving the auditorium, <laughs> I ran up behind him, and he was like gaining distance down the corridor. And I said, "Mr. Parsons," <laughs> and uh, he turned around, not being accustomed to being called Mr. Parsons by anybody. And uh, I introduced myself and told him that uh, I was wondering if if the paper, the school paper, the Mirror, needed a critic, a film critic. Um, and uh, he told me the next time I saw him. Uh, that I could do that. that I, and I also was like a cartoonist for the paper and, uh, How often did and did they the publish? occasional... What? How often did they publish? Uh, every two weeks. Okay. Um, as I recall, it was every two weeks. And uh, I actually did a, a comic strip for them that lasted for a while. Um, unfortunately, I only have the first issue that I appeared in and the next to last issue that I appeared in. The others have all disappeared and I've not been able to to get them back. But um, I, I wrote record reviews, did uh, movie reviews. Uh, surprisingly, for a high school paper, I ended up covering a lot of X-rated movies. 
I mean, like El Topo and the Clockwork Orange and uh, and the Devils. So, so movies uh, that in theory you you should not be able anyone at the school except maybe senior. Wait, X was uh, seventeen or was that? Yeah, I, I think it was it was seventeen in the state of Ohio. Yeah, so um, it was only the seniors that that would be able to take advantage, <laughs> and and they may have had moral or. <laughs> Uh, reasons why they would why they might not want to go thinking that anything that was x-rated was bound to be pornographic yeah um uh, are you you're, you're Cincinnati based yes always have been okay um so uh what uh, basic question I ask everybody is um what was your first movie my first movie yeah first I, I first uh, movie and first theatrical experience okay um well, the first movie I ever saw, I can't be too clear on that because I was always watching television from my earliest days in the crib. Um, it was put on to keep me quiet, you know, the television, and I would watch things there. But the first movie that I remember seeing as a theatrical experience was a revival of The Incredible Shrinking Man. Mm. Um, this was in the early 60s. Uh, and uh, my grandmother took me, and I re remember it as my first theatrical experience. I, I may have had drive-in experiences, but this was my first indoor, enclosed experience. Do you remember the theater? Yes, it was the Plaza Theater, where I saw virtually every movie that I saw between the ages of, say, six and 14, 15, you know? Um, it, it closed after that and, and I left, I left school not long after that. How big was the um, theater? Uh, it was like, I guess your standard 400 seat neighborhood theater, something in that range. Um, but the thing about the incredible shrinking man was that we, I think my grandmother wanted to see the co-feature <laughs> and we got there, uh, early in, in order to get a seat. And we ended up seeing the end of the co-feature, which was the incredible shrinking man. And we went in and, uh, she told me, she prepared me for the experience. And I remember walking down that, that sloping aisle toward my seat in the dark and suddenly seeing a giant spider appear on the screen and, and running out screaming. And, uh, I had to be lured back in and when I came back in and we actually got into a seat, it wasn't long before the spider came back. Uh, and so then I left the theater and refused to come back. So my grandmother did not get to, to see whatever it was she went to see. Um, and the funny thing was is that in, in, the, in the apartment that she had, um, she had cockroaches, a lot of cockroaches in the basement. I remember I would turn on the light and look down there and see them scatter. So I had feelings in my mind already uh, that were against being in basements. And when I went into the theater, that's what I saw on the screen, a big basement. Um, well, and so I think somehow that, that uh, subconsciously uh, oriented me to be relating the cinematic experience to one of fear at the same time. And it's always been something I've responded to and tried to understand that that's the birth of fear. Cause one of the things I find fascinating is that, um, when I ask these, when I ask people these questions, typically there's a few people that say wonderment, there's a thing of wonderment, but a lot of people like I'm, my first movie memory is, um, which I mean to go into the generational divide, but, uh, it was Gozer in Ghostbusters. It was that scene where the, um, hands come out of the couch and I kept thinking that like 
there was glowing eyes in the other room and a hand I couldn't put my hand on the couch that way and like I don't know that you're saying you think that specifically made you a horror film for life horror film fan for life well it made I don't know it may it may run even deeper I mean that uh, horror is somehow like a room tone with with me it's just like a constant room tone and the things that attract me are things that have some sort of a fearful dimension. They're things that are powerful in some way. And that power may be expressed in the form of, of uh, suspense or beauty. Uh, I remember uh, as a child, this must have been after I saw Incredible Shrinking Man. I went uh, with uh, my grandmother and mother downtown to see Pinocchio when it was revived. And I remember sitting in the back row, and, and there are terrifying scenes in Pinocchio, but I remember also hiding my eyes sometimes when the images were just too beautiful to look at. So I had a very sensitive uh, response to uh, beauty and color and uh, and horror, any anything like that. So it was uh, always a very emotional experience for me to go to the movies. What about uh, drive-ins? It sounds like you said drive-ins may have been yes. heated. Do you, did you have a particular drive-in? Your mom used to take you to drive-ins? Yes, yes. Uh, my mother had a job that kept her busy during the weeks, and so I was usually with a foster family. Uh, she was a single mother uh, working a job, and she would take me home on the weekends. And so seeing my mother again and getting to go, to go home again, uh, those things, those feelings were both related to the ritual of going to the drive-in together. And uh, I would be dressed when she picked me up, but she would have pajamas in the car for me. And before we went to the drive-in, we always went to this little uh, one of two pharmacies that were near the two respective drive-ins we went to, and I would buy a stack of comic books yes. that I could read in the back seat while we were waiting for night to fall. And I would change into my pajamas and uh, read my comics until the movie came on. And obviously my attention was sort of divided, as it always is in the drive-in, by what's on the screen and what's happening around your car. You know, it could be people walking by different personalities of people walking by, the the action going on in the concession stand, sometimes the hilarious contrast between what's on the screen and the silhouettes of children playing on the playground underneath the screen. You know, some horrible thing could be happening up on the screen in a horror movie, and then there'd be kids playing below. Um, uh, so I don't have a specific, really, uh, like a key drive-in experience uh, Tim, did, you, yeah. did, did, you, did your mother pick the films for herself, or did she tailor them to you, or it was uh, back and both. forth? Both. I remember both experiences, and and my, I mean, I remember seeing uh, the uh, my earliest uh, Roger Corman, Edgar Allan Poe pictures during that time. I remember seeing King Kong versus Godzilla, uh, which had a huge uh, promotional uh, engine, you know, guiding it into town. I mean, they actually put little likenesses of King Kong and Godzilla on the drive-in uh, sign outside. I remember. Did your mom? Would your mom watch? Oh, sure. Yeah, she. So she. You saw your mother at a young age watching these uh, genre films and getting a kick out of them just as much as you were. Yeah. Yeah. 
Right. Was that her general my, taste? My mother also had other specific interests in movies. She loved religious epics, for one thing. She loved movies about miracles. Um, so I think that may have instilled in me some appreciation for fantasy, you know, just as a sort of uh, base tone for the whole thing. But um, she also liked sleazy movies. <laughs> I have to say that she liked sleazy movies because we would often go to the drive-in and they'd be strange movies, I know. And sometimes she would actually tell me, okay, go into the back seat and lie down. You know, it's like when something adult was going to happen on the screen, she wanted me to get down behind the, uh, you know, the seat. What was an example? Uh, hide my eyes. Um, well, boy, it's hard for me to figure out what these films were. I mean, sometimes I know they were European. I remember I have this very strange memory that I've never been able to trace that uh, was of a movie ending. It was in color, and there was a man who looked like, um, uh, what is the, uh, the uh, uh, Horst Buchholz the German actor Horst Buchholz, right. he looked like that, but he was like standing in a greenhouse, what it looked like to be a, a greenhouse, and it was raining outside, and he lifted a gun to his head, and he shot himself in the temple. And that's how the movie ended. This is, this is my memory. But I don't know if that was a dream that I had when I fell asleep at the drive-in or what, but I've never been able to, to trace that movie. But there were some adult-leaning films like like Teenage Wolf Pack that Horst Buchholz appeared in uh, during that period. So it's quite possible I did see him in something during that time. Um, I just uh, your essay on uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. You mentioned that um, you you were six when you first really fell in love with movies. I suppose so. Okay. I, I, uh, it was it was a big year for me. It was like 1962. And uh, that was the point when, when I was six, I, if, I mean, I've not really been able to trace the time of that first uh, experience of seeing The Incredible Shrinking Man. I found a couple of, of newspaper listings for what might have been it, but I don't think it was, it must have been earlier than when I was six, because I remember going to movies for the first time on my own when I was six years old. Um, I was living with a, a family that was just a short distance away from the local theater, the, the plaza, as I mentioned earlier. And I was able to just walk the, the equivalent of like three blocks and be wow. there. And in those days, uh, you know, the matinees were 75 cents and there were a lot of kids lined up every weekend to see double features. And I would uh, often, if I really liked something, I would go back and see it on Saturday and Sunday. You mentioned uh, Jerry Lewis in the article, or you mentioned Absent-Minded Professor specifically. I kind of wanted you and Ted to deep dive onto Jerry Lewis because I know Ted's a fan too. Oh, well, that's, that's the nutty professor. But I love the Absent-Minded Professor too. That was oh. a fabulous film. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. Uh, no, I, he, I, the funny thing about it is, that's interesting, there's a... Uh, not that big a difference in age between you and me, Tim, about a couple of years or so. But mm -hmm. I, I didn't, I didn't see the Jerry Lewis films for some reason. Uh, I think my, it was my, it was my dad, uh, maybe. Uh, it was only until later that I got into Jerry Lewis, and I, and it was through really Martin and Lewis films, and then the Jerry, and then trying to figure out why the French love him so much. But you, you were probably seeing uh, that he was a, 
big ch- uh, box office draw for the children at that time. When right. You... Yeah. And actually, I, I've looked up newspaper uh, clippings from that period, and there were times when he made personal appearances at Cincinnati theaters. Oh man. Uh, when his when his movies opened, they would they would not be the the local neighborhood cinemas like I attended, but they'd be like at the down downtown theaters. Um, the first one I saw, I think, was Cinderella. Um, and that was at an unusual theater. It was at a place called the Camargo Theater that was in a different area of town. It's where my cousins lived, and uh, saw them on a. Uh, and, and had a matinee together with them and saw Cinderella. Uh, but The Nutty Professor was a huge movie for me because it was so aggressive in its use of color. Uh, <laughs> there's a scene when uh, he's supposed to come into the classroom with a, with a hangover, and how he conveys that is that he, he changes the, the glass in his eyeglasses to red lenses. Uh, you know, instead of having bloodshot eyes, he has bloodshot eyeglasses and it's a hilarious thing and and the color just becomes bombarding when he's actually having the transformation um and it was quite harrowing i remember it, it cuts to a sort of overhead sh- shot and you see him <sighs> around on the floor with all these chemicals from his broken lab equipment and uh he's just pouring cascades of new color over and over on the floor when you when you would see something like that now that's is that um, when do you think your critical facility started kicking in? I mean, that was probably more of a subconscious uh, reaction. Oh at yeah, the time. right. That was all. It was all very sensory then. Yes. It, there was nothing critical about it. My critical sensibility started kicking in. I would say around 1968 when I started buying my first books about movies. Um, the first books I got, we we found a. Uh, a bookstore uh, in uh, the Swifton Shopping Center. I forget the name of the bookstore, but they actually had a film book section. It was just like one row, you know, of, of shelves. But I found Hitchcock Truffaut and also uh, John Baxter's Science Fiction in the Cinema. Those were the first two books that I that I bought about film, and. Uh, Obviously, I, I absorbed them, and I also there was Castle of Frankenstein magazine, which was an intellectual step or two up from from fam- famous monsters of Filmland, and they covered things like Orson Welles and Maxo Fools and and all sorts of a whole broad range of of actors or not actors but directors. Ted and I, um, Ted and I were talking about this a second ago. How um, I think you guys had to deal with it a lot more. With you know, each generation had much more availability to a good library of film. But there's this mm-hmm. aspect where sometimes, uh, especially in your teen years, uh, and you're becoming a film person, you read more about stuff than you actually see it, and then you, you imagine these movies in your head. Yes, I mean, and back then, you were limited to what was playing in theaters and what was playing on television. And there were really only three television channels at the time. Um, And then around 1969, independent channels came in and there was public television suddenly. And uh, with public television, that suddenly gave one access to foreign films. Um, There was a a weekly uh, program. I forget, uh, I'm... I'm, I'm, uh, not remembering the name of the of the critic that hosted the show right now, but there was one, and then there was another late night show which which focused just on silent 
films, which was called The Toy That Grew Up. Um, and they wouldn't show complete films usually. They would they would show short films, uh, but they would they would focus on a theme. Uh, so I, I learned a lot from that. So I, I would circle things in TV Guide and make sure that I that I watched them. And uh, and uh, yeah, Castle of Frankenstein had a thing a feature called the TV Movie Guide where they reviewed things just as thumbnails. And, uh, so that was something that I would, I would reread the magazine so much that I would remember the names of movies that had an especially favorable review. And, uh, and I would make a point of tuning in to anything that seemed interesting. I mean, and there was, uh, I think it wasn't Dante writing for them at the time. Was yes, he did. And, uh, and your first exposure to Bava, I think is in Castle Frankenstein, wasn't it? Or, it was, yeah. it was because for some reason, my neighborhood theater never got Mario Bava movies. I wasn't aware of him at all, except through, you know, the occasional photo from Black Sabbath or something in, in Famous Monsters. But uh, then uh, Joe began to cover uh, his movies, and uh, he would also refer to Bava, you know, as an adjective in reviews of other films, like he would refer to. I remember he reviewed Whirlpool, the Jose Larraz film, and he said there were flashes of Bava-like brilliance. And I thought, oh, well, then I have to see this, you know. Um, and didn't get the chance until much later. In fact, it's, and I, ne I never saw Whirlpool in its entirety until I did the audio commentary for the Blu-ray. Wow. <laughs> um, going going so back to when you bought the books, when you, uh, you said you were buying some books, uh, you know, I've always tried to, I've always been trying to figure out how, why I'm such a film obsessive that I am. And I think a lot of it is because of my dad's influence. But uh, did you, what did you, did, did something specific I want to buy this book to read about it, or it was just a natural evolution for you. You can't really pinpoint it. Well, obviously there were pictures. You know, they were actual. So it it seemed to belong to me in the same collection as my Monster Magazine collection. Oh, okay, I got you. All right. So I picked them up for that, but also in reading about them, I realized that these movies had a greater dimension because they would actually relate connections between one or more movies. You know. Um, Things like that. There was a chapter in science fiction on the cinema that was all about the films of Jack Arnold. Uh, and so that gave me a way of, of seeing that oh, this is like a whole family of films with the same point of view, the same directorial point of view. And I remember that I always had had uh, I'd learned to observe just from watching movies that the the director's name was always the last name on the screen before there was a fade down <laughs> and then a fade into yeah. the story that you were about to be told. And it was always like being introduced to the storyteller. So I had a sort of innate sense of what a director did before I actually learned what they did mm -hmm. uh, by reading. But there was one book in particular, it was Ivan Butler's Horror in the Cinema, which was in that same series of uh, science fiction in the cinema. And his entire last chapter in the book was on Roman Polanski's Repulsion, which I hadn't seen, but I was so fascinated with the chapter and everything that it described as happening in the film and, and giving it reasons for happening and for why it was there and, and describing the way scenes were shot that when the film finally came to late night television here, I watched it. And for the first time, it was like I had already seen the film and I had a way of looking into it deeper. And I think that that was that essay in that book was like my skeleton key into uh -huh. what critical thinking about movies really was. 
And uh, so then I began to apply that to everything that I saw and that and that interested me in some way. And it was always key to see these movies as many times as possible. I never had the idea that, you know, just because I'd seen something once, I didn't have to see it again. It made it imperative that I see it more than once. Hmm. I had this experience this week where I went to um, uh, Central Library and I realized that a lot of the book, I, w- I went back to the film section, I don't go there that often, and I realized that it was almost like it um, directed my taste in some ways, some of the books that were up there, just because the books that were available, same with like what was in the video store at the time. Um, hmm. Did you, when did you, um, you started, you were still, you wrote for the, your uh, high school paper, but you started writing uh, outside of high school at that point, right? To, while you were still in high I school? I did. I did. When I was in, uh, in my sophomore year of high school, um, I discovered Cinefantastique magazine in a bookstore and a friend recommended that I try writing for them. And I, as I was very drawn to it, it was the first slick, glossy, uh, magazine that i'd seen devoted to these films did you just like submit or i did i just uh, you know took my friend's advice and and uh, wrote a few reviews and sent them in um and oddly enough the uh what what happened was is that my my friend died uh while we were still in school that second year and uh the night that he died, I went to see a preview screening of A Clockwork Orange. Um, and I was underage. And, and the movie affected me in a big way. I, I was just invited to go to this screening because I'd written for the paper. And uh, so I, I, I was told that my friend died before I went to the movie. Um, but there was some doubt about it. My mother said she was going to try and find out more about it and that she would tell me when I got back. So through the whole experience of seeing a clockwork orange for the first time, I was wondering, is he alive or is he dead? And then I got home and, uh, found out and, you know, it was obviously a a huge thing for me. It was the first death of a, of a personal friend. And, um, I didn't go back to school for two weeks. I was out of school. I just couldn't couldn't see going back. And uh, it was during that period that I wrote this review. I took A Clockwork Orange as the subject of my first review. And uh, I sent along with it shorter reviews. There was one of Godzilla versus the Smog Monster and then one of a movie called the... Uh, it's now called Tower of Evil, but back then it was called... Uh, what was it? Uh something on Snape, horror on Snape Island. That's what it was called. Did you mention the friend in the review of Clockwork Orange? No, no. I, I use this anecdote a lot, but or it's not my anecdote. It's an, it, Lucy K always uses this joke that um, uh, he found out his daughter watched Clockwork Orange at a sleepover. And he's like, oh, so your childhood died last night. Like that movie's, I felt the same way when I first saw it, but I like mm. t- coupled with that traumatic of it, that's, that's astounding. Wow. I'm, I'm sorry. Wow. It was, it was a powerful thing. And I, and you know, over the course of the following, I would say two to three years, I, I remember counting the number of times I had seen a Clark orange and I stopped counting at 14. Uh, I don't know how many times I've seen it now, but I don't, it, I don't know that if it was the circumstances of when I first saw it, but there was something about it that I really wanted to, deconstruct in my head and make sense of and I read the novel 
And I subsequently became a huge uh, admirer of the works of Anthony Burgess. I mean, I've, I've read virtually everything that he ever published. He was quite a prolific novelist. And uh, toward the end of his life, I got to correspond with him briefly. Wow. Um, what? I have your one of your first, uh, was it, you had a, a Burgess essay in the Purdue Fiction? Uh, that's right. Yeah. Um, they were putting, I, in those days when I was trying to uh, become a novelist, I read uh, university publications uh, that focused on fiction and uh, interviews with writers and so forth. Um, I remember there was one called Salma Gundy. There was the uh, uh, Modern Fiction Studies from Purdue University and uh, the Kenyan Review, things like that. And uh, Paris Review, obviously. Uh, but uh, they had announced uh, at Modern Fiction Studies that they were going to devote an entire issue to Anthony Burgess. And at that time, I had just about finished my reading of everything that he'd published up to that point. And it was all sort of in my head as this continuum. It was the only time in my life I just read him for like months. It may have even been for a full year. Um, so I wrote to them and I said, I would really like to participate in your in your thing. Uh, what is your deadline? And then I asked them if they could possibly extend their deadline by a week because, you know, it was coming together. Uh, it, I'd never tried to write anything like this before. And they allowed me. And they were very pleased when when it came in, and it turned out that I was the the editor of the of the magazine told me that I was the only contributor to that issue who didn't have three PhDs, <laughs> and and when she sent me my letter of acceptance, she addressed it to Dr. Timothy Lucas, and uh, you know I I didn't even graduate high school, I I dropped out of high school, so I always think of that as my honorary doctorate. Why'd you drop out? personal reasons that had to do with with my mother and decisions and choices that she was making with her own life it was basically impossible to continue there how old, if I could, how old were you uh, when the uh, you did the Burgess the Anthony Burgess essay like the, the... um I think I was in my early 20s early 20s I'm not I'm not sure what the year was but uh, I might have been 22 I want to I, I want to uh, rewind a little bit and uh Maybe I was trying to explain the shame because, like I said, the age differences here. The uh, I was trying to say if you were a true film obsessive at the time, Cinema Fantastique was one of the magazines you had to read, had to buy, as opposed to Starlog was more like okay, you, that's a mainstream mag for the the ones that don't want to go deeper. I mean, is that how you saw Cinema Fantastique? That's how I saw it. Uh, well, I, I didn't really even read Starlog because it struck me as a sort of entertainment this week yeah, of science exactly. fiction. Uh, it wasn't. And anything that was addressed to, you know, critical thinking or, or having a deeper appreciation of, you know, films that had come earlier. Um, but it was it was great because uh, they, they did have their short reviews, but they were always so well written and so concise that uh, they were able to convey a lot of thought about something, but just distilled down to its essence. What kind as, of as a, sorry. I was just going to say that they also gave us little uh, postcards where we could just write down our immediate thoughts after seeing something and drop it in the mailbox. Um, and then they would put together their, their short notices from these cards. Um, I still have a bunch of them that I Xerox before sending out and, uh, and some were never published. What kind of uh, books were you reading in high school? 
Um, Fiction. Not very many. I mean, I, I always collected books, which is an odd thing, but I, I didn't read anything but nonfiction. I remember having some of the Sax Romer Fu Manchu books and Conan Doyle Sherlock Holmes stories and things like this. My mother loved to go to thrift stores and uh, she would always send me off to the book department while she was rummaging through old clothes and things. Um, and I would always bring something home from the uh, the thrift stores. And uh, I remember I, I had a visiting uncle one day and he called out to my mother. He was looking at my bookcase and he says, this kid's got good taste. And nobody had ever said that about me before. And it was actually such a personal thing that I took great pride in that. It's like, you know, he, he was the first adult that took care to notice something about me like that. And, and he gave me his, his sign of approval. It was a very personal thing because it's not something I told my teachers about or anything like that. I was a bad student. I remember having, um, I had a moment like that with my stepmom where, um, for Christmas, I asked for uh, uh, CDs of Bitches Brew and uh, Soft Bolton by Flaming Lips. And uh -huh. she she told me that she went to the um, uh, clerk to ask for them. And the clerk said I had good taste. I, and I remember yeah. <laughs> I remember that adult validation was somehow important to me. Um, yeah. When did um, so what were the first um, after high school? What were the uh, uh, what were the what kind of writings were you doing in, on film after that? Um, I stayed with Cinefantastique. I wasn't very adventurous about trying other publications, um, except for local entertainment papers. I mean, at, at the time I left home, um, there was about a year there where I had to sort of find my feet and where I was going to stay. And I ended up staying in this apartment with other people who were working on a local entertainment paper that was called the Queen's Jester. And, I became the film editor of, of that paper and worked on that for a couple of years. Uh, then that was followed by another local entertainment paper that came along after the Jester uh, Cease publication that was called the Rivertown Times. I was very briefly the film editor of Cincinnati Magazine, which is like the, the local Chamber of Commerce publication that's still going on. Uh, I didn't stay with them very long because they asked me not to be critical. <laughs> I didn't I didn't see the point of writing reviews of a film if you could not be critical. But they basically just wanted me to give a synopsis of everything and uh, and leave it at that. And I I told them that was not what I did. So I shot myself in the foot there in terms of getting a nice paycheck every month. When did a VHS review start coming in? Uh, that came about, um, when I was right, uh, a friend of mine here locally, uh, uh, a guy named Steve Spat told me he, he used to get a, a magazine that was for video insiders because he worked in a, in a, a department store where he was selling, uh, records and videotapes and things. So he got this magazine and, uh, it led me to a place in Chicago, a magazine called video movies i think it was video it became video times but it was also known as video movies i think first and they would send me vhs tapes uh even beta tapes i think at the beginning and i would review things for them and it was while i was doing the work there that video watchdog was conceived because i started noticing uh differences in in there were different versions of the same movie 
uh, I would find out. And even movies that were pan and scanned might be pan and scanned a different way between two different releases. So I, I wanted to point these things out. And everybody else on the magazine that was reviewing films on video were just reviewing the movies. They didn't make any personal remarks about the presentation. And I, I convinced my editor that this was the whole reason behind reviewing a movie on home video. You could find the review of the movie anywhere, but this was specifically about video. You had to talk about the presentation somehow. It started out just with pan and scan. It wasn't you. I mean, transfers weren't obviously going to be a thing. Were you were you doing audio checking things like that? Or? Um, it was a little primitive at the time to be writing about audio with any authority. Um, but I would I would compare uh, dubbed and and uh, and subtitled versions of movies. Uh, differences in panning and scanning. I remember we, we started out with uh, two versions of Hercules with, with Steve Reeves because I had seen it on television. And then I saw the home video version the following week. And so the previous one was fresh in my mind. And I had also taped it off of the air. So I, I realized comparing the two that they not only had different opening credit sequences, but they were dubbed in English differently. And that's because when the original release from the 1950s was re-released in the early 70s, they shortened it so that it could be a double bill with Hercules Unchained, the sequel. And to make the two movies shorter, they cut stuff out of them and they redubbed them from scratch. Did, uh, Tim, did you, when you started doing these kind of reviews, did you sense that you were the only one doing this? Or was anybody else out there doing it? Uh, your peers or... Or were you the basically the pioneer in this uh, somewhat? Yeah. I was doing it all on my own. I mean, I didn't have anybody that I was referring to as a as a point of reference. But I there's also Douglas Pratt who was doing his Laserdisc newsletter. Oh yeah. Um, right. And I understand that he was doing it around the same time, but I think he came after I did. Either way, we we were working on this independently, and and you know together we. We started this kind of of criticism. Well, on a personal note, I just remember I I came across Video Times at, at Reed Wars here in Evansville, and I uh, I just uh, remember there was something different. I mean, I was reading you before I knew, you know I knew this. I was reading Tim Lucas before that I knew it was Tim Lucas, and there was something going on in this magazine that really really liked it. And then of course you uh, those paperback books came out that Video Times was, yeah. uh, put out, and uh, that was uh, I mean. How soon did you have a VHS machine? Did you uh, were you one of the first ones in the market? Were you did you go crazy once that came out? Or well, sort of. <laughs> um, I mean, I actually uh, I was collecting the tapes before I had a player of my own. I was um, too. <laughs> I remember that I I had uh, f my friend Steve Spat as as I mentioned before. He lived down the street from me, and uh, the night that uh, John Lydon and Keith Levine from Public Image Limited were on the Tomorrow Show with Tom Snyder, uh, you know, he he recorded it. Um, and so I said, oh, well, you've got to give me a tape of that. And so I had things like that. And uh, there was also a recording of uh, The Adventures of Hercules, which was a feature film distillation of a Italian TV miniseries based on the Odyssey. It had Mario Bava special effects in it, and it ran on the CBS Late Movie once. And uh, 
so I had a friend in, in Los Angeles who recorded that and sent me a copy of that. So I remember having this little shelf of like, you know, six or seven tapes before I had my own machine. And then once I got my, my own machine, all bets were off and the collection quickly accumulated. Were you just like going to other people's houses to watch these or to rewatch them? Or sure. Sure. Yeah. And I mean, they would also like, uh, you know, take things out of the store. And so I got to see movies like Halloween, you know, for the first time on, on their, their television sets. That doesn't sound like a movie that, that goes well with pan and scan. Um, video, no, no. <laughs> video watchdog. Did that, did that start as a column or was that a separate magazine when it started? It was a column. Uh, in fact, the, uh, the editors took a little, um, they they did a, a spoof on the RCA Victor um, Nipper character who's listening to the phonograph, the dog that's listening to the phonograph. And they, they put a little dog uh, in front of uh, a television set and called it Tipper. So they were referring to me as Tipper, the video watchdog. And I think this coincided with Tipper Gore, uh, who was the, uh, the wife of uh, Al Gore, the uh, the senator at that time, and she had a campaign going to sanitize rock and roll music. The chip and stuff. Right. Uh, she. Uh, I remember Frank Zappa going in before Congress and and you know giving a long talk. That's a, that's a cool uh, that's a cool testimony. That's I, I watched I've watched it on YouTube and friends have recommended watching it there. Yeah. So I I think the by naming the video watchdog Tipper for this little cartoon was just a sort of you know joke at, at Tipper Gore's expense. But uh, when video movies or video times went under, um, I wanted to continue the thing uh, in other forms. And so I briefly did it for a thing called Overview. That was a video magazine on videotape that Michael Nesmith uh, produced uh, in Los Angeles. And it was only sent out to, I think, six different markets around the country that where there was a lot of video penetration. Philadelphia was one of them, I know, New York, Los Angeles. Um, and the, the the magazine had a lot of interesting contributors to it. Um, you know, comedians, they would have dance performances and uh, music videos and things like that. But it was just ahead of its time. It didn't make its money back. Um, and the idea was is that if you get tired of what this is, you can always use the tape. You can tape over it, you know, with whatever you want. But, um, you know, it, it, it should have been great. And I, I did a little uh, five-minute segment as the video watchdog, which you can see on YouTube, I think, uh, or at least uh, I, the video watchdog site may still have it up. I'm not sure. Um, but uh, but that happened. And then when, when that didn't move forward, uh, I offered – uh, Fangoria, the column, and they couldn't accept it for Fangoria, but they said they were starting their own uh, competition in in the form of a magazine called Gorezone, and they invited me to to do it there. And so I was with Gorezone for like the first twenty three issues, I believe. Back to the uh, um, the video, were you guys? Was it just you guys were speaking an essay and you had clips along with it, or are you guys trying to do anything? I mean, it sounds like there's room for to do something kind of interesting or innovative with that. Well, overview, you mean? Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah, that was uh, it was a weird experience because it was my first trip to Los Angeles. And what they did 
Uh, I told them basically what I wanted to to cover, what I thought we could cover, and they 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 basically took me to the office and they sat me down at a table in front of a typewriter and said, "Write your script. We're we're recording this tomorrow." <laughs> and I don't know why they didn't let me write it at home and then submit it to them where I would have been more comfortable, but I had to write this on a strange typewriter in a strange room with people walking around me. Um, so what I picked out were basically uh, things. There was a, a, a video version of The Wizard of Oz on the market at that time that left out an important line of dialogue for, for some reason, just a piece of the scene be where the wizard is passing out gifts to the various characters. There's an important line of dialogue missing in uh in that uh it was it was released on a label called video for kids and a piece of it was just missing so i pointed that out i pointed out the awful colorization that that uh, had been done on the absent-minded professor where where you know the tires on the on the model t ford were the same blue as fred mcmurray's hair um and uh what else was there uh oh um, I had I had been given uh, a tape of the fly, the original version of the fly in its original widescreen dimensions. This is extremely rare at the time, but David Cronenberg had gotten it from Martin Scorsese, <laughs> and he and David gave it to me, so I was actually able to show people a, a shot from the fly as it should have looked uh, for the first time on video in widescreen. And then compared it to the pan and scan version, just to show people what they were what they were missing in the translation. I do want to ask about Videodrome. So you were um, what you you were assigned to write about it, and then that role just kind of grew. Assigned to write about Videodrome. Yeah, yeah. Um, what happened was, is, uh, oddly enough, uh, I remember that I was writing a lot about Oliver Stone because I had sort of. I don't want to say discovered him, but I was the first person to like approach him and interview him for a publication um, for his movie Seizure. This is like 1974, his directorial debut. Um, and I, I did this for Cinefantastique, and we, we spent a lot of time on it. I remember Oliver sent me a whole shoebox full of cassettes that he where he would just answer questions of mine at length. And just, I wish that I had kept them, but, but tape was, was a rare commodity oh, in those, in those man, you could have, you four could have, days. That would have been they all got recycled. Uh, it's, it's a real shame because they were hilarious. Um, but anyway, I, I transcribed uh, the tapes, what was most important from them, and uh, wrote my article from that. But they weren't able to use it because they couldn't give, they couldn't get the material to illustrate the feature. So it never ran until I finally ran the interview in Video Watchdog. I think it was number 27. Um, so anyway, because of the Oliver Stone connection, I was doing a lot of preliminary stories for Cinefantastique on Conan the Barbarian as it was coming together. And at the same time, another writer named Paul M. Salmon was writing about Cronenberg for Cinefantastique. And there was a point when we actually crossed, and Paul started doing all of the writing about Conan the Barbarian, and I started writing about Cronenberg. We just traded roles. And he ended up going to, to Spain and becoming a, an active member of the film industry, and and I'm still here in Ohio. But. <laughs> Salmon was the guy that wrote the uh, Blade Runner book? 
That's right. Yeah. And he's also written a big book on uh, Tarzan, uh, which is which is really great. And he wrote a book about Christmas movies. He's done a lot of, of writing about a film. But um, anyway, yeah, I, I, I got invited up to, to do uh, an on set report of video drum and I was the only critic allowed to visit the set. And what I didn't know until I got there was that David really hadn't told anyone on the publicity end or the production end of the film that I was coming up. He was just sort of sneaking me onto the set. And my first day on the set, it looked like I was going to get thrown out, but he went to bat for me and convinced them to let me stay on, you know, under the understanding that I would not reveal, you know, anything about the story and in my uh, reports. I'm guessing that was a relationship that stayed true through the years. Are you guys, are, do you guys still friends or? No, we haven't spoken in about 30 years. Uh, we had, we had, uh, I, I think for a, for a relationship between a, a journalist and, and his subject. I mean, I, I had, I had a really strong view of what I could do. I, I really wanted to be someone who could, sort of take what I knew or what I felt about his movies and kind of spread the gospel, you know, and, and sort of define what, what a Cronenbergian film was. Um, that wasn't being done so much at the time. Um, and I really saw him as an unusually literary filmmaker. Um, in, in fact, one of the things that I liked most about him was that he, he consolidated or, or brought together a lot of uh, my own literary enthusiasms that I never knew anyone else who would who would be like interested simultaneously in say Vladimir Nabokov and William S. Burroughs. They just were like polar opposites in in literary circles, but but he admired them both, and so we had that in common. And uh, I remember the first time I interviewed him, I asked him if he had ever read Thomas Pynchon because I saw some of. Pynchon stuff and he had read Pynchon, but he didn't particularly like Gravity's Rainbow and we talked about that um, So I really wanted to use my my writing about him not just to uh, Report what was going on in his films or to plug them or anything, but I really wanted to stand up and and explain uh, In some sense what people's connection should be to these films and how how they should look at them um and so he really did occupy me creatively through most of the 1980s. And, uh, you know, my, my own ambitions escalated as, as I was working with him. And, you know, as will often happen, I wanted to write something original. And sometimes his, his projects seemed to propose things like that. And, and they certainly encouraged things like sequels to The Fly and whatnot. I wrote a sequel to uh, a treatment for a sequel to The Fly that got overlooked for for weird reasons, but but some aspects of the treatment do turn up in the film that they that they made, um, and uh, I also spent a year writing preliminary drafts of a script for Naked Lunch, um, which he gave me permission to do because he said he really wanted to get the ball rolling on that film, but he, he was obliged to keep working on total recall, which was a movie that got made, but without him, but wasn't was it originally show... supposed to have like Richard Dreyfus in it when he was doing it. Yes. Yes. He wanted Richard Dreyfus for it. 
And I remember that his big problem with it is is that the producer, uh, I think Ron Chassette, really wanted this section or this this plot twist in the movie where the hero had to complete his duties before his head exploded because there was something that had been injected into his neck. And I, I said, this is, this is from uh, Escape from New York. This is in the Carpenter film. And he said, yeah, it is. And I really don't like it either, but the producer insists that we keep it. And so they, they couldn't get past this hurdle. And uh, I really don't remember if it's, if it's in the movie. It's been a long time since I've seen the movie. But uh, anyway, that's why he left that. And then he went on to do Naked Lunch. And, you know, as I well understood, he, he wanted the opportunity to write it himself. But he did call and he told me that uh, he appreciated the work that I'd done and that I had been able to solve some problems that saved him time that would have taken time to solve um, if he had started from scratch. So I've got I've got two drafts of my own that are sitting around. I just found one in the attic. I'm going to reread it and see how well I did. That's a, I mean, what, how, how do you start thinking about adapting Naked Lunch? Like how do you, what was the process of diving in on that? Well, I, I had read, I'd, I'd been reading, I'd known the book for probably seven or eight years at that point and had read it a few times. And I knew that it was just a series of, of routines that it wouldn't really hold together. And I knew that it was going to need that biographical element. And I had just read um, his book, uh, Queer, uh, which was an early draft of his novel, Junkie, which was more biographical or autobiographical. And I thought, this is, this is how you do it. You have, you have these routines separated by scenes of him as in reality, as he really is. And you show how the reality influences the fantasy. Um, and so a lot of the, the, the main things that happen, even in the version that David made, involve the real biography of William S. Burroughs. They don't really have anything to do with, with Naked Lunch, per se. Um, things like the the William Tell experiment where he where he accidentally shot his wife to death that, and so on. That's probably my favorite part of the movie, yeah. yeah. So Tim, when you're this period with David and you're mm-hmm. you're doing drafts, you're doing I'm sure you're still doing uh, what was was video watchdog started by then or is you're still doing no. fantastic back then. That's right. No. So did you think that you were going to maybe become a screenwriter or did you want to do you wanted to keep your hands in all kinds of different things or did you want to No, I, I did. I thought I was going to become a screenwriter and and basically I what I learned is is you it's a dangerous place to stand between someone else and their ambition. <laughs> <laughs> um and the way I was doing it, I was doing it like a guy here in Ohio. I wasn't doing it like a guy in Los Angeles. I wasn't doing it through an agent. Um, and I wasn't doing it for any money. And as a result of the experience, I mean, I, I learned the hard way, some very important lessons, which is never do anything without representation, never do anything free because people value what they pay for. Um, and, uh, and it's a hard lesson to learn. And, you know, it came rather late in my life because I was already, you know, in my thirties. Uh, doing this. This is something you should learn when you're in your teens. When did you, uh, when was the first novel? When did you start switching over to prose fiction? Right. Well, I, I had always been writing 
some form of novel. Um, I wrote my first one in 1975. It was really, it was kind of a novel in the sense that the chapters connected, but they were basically chapters documenting different nightmares that I had. Um, so there was like a through line. This is but, before Rick, uh, Rick Beach's, uh, his comic book, remember the Rarity Teens, is that called? The, the what? The comic book that uh, Rick Beach did of, he was documenting dreams and nightmares too. Oh yeah. yeah. But that sounds like you were doing it before that. Well, this was 1975 and it was called the audience becomes flesh, which is a very Cronenbergian title, <laughs> but it was before I'd ever seen a Cronenberg film. Um, and in fact, when I got to the set of video drama, I remember looking through the script sitting there on, on the stage and I, I called him over and I said, look at this. And I said, cause there was all this text about becoming flesh. And I thought, this is this is what I was doing in, in my own first writing. Um, and I thought of that because I was just looking at the manuscript, what had piled up and, you know, what is this about? And it was about me as an audience learning to become not so passive and and to take a more active, you know, role to sort of assert myself as a being of, of flesh and blood. Um, but uh, after that, I, I did another one called The Art of Conversation, which was a book of conversations with different imaginary people. I wrote a short novella called Translucent Skin. There was one called Win Paradise. There was another one called Cassie Effler. There was one called uh, TV Heaven that I worked on for about four or five years. And uh, I had a horrible experience with that because I, I put a lot of time on it, sent it to an editor at St. Martin's Press, which I'd seen on some PBS show was like publishing a lot of innovative fiction at the time. And I got back a wonderful letter from an editor there named Ashton Applewhite, who, who's gone on to become a published author in her own right. But she was very impressed with, with the book and, and she was comparing me to Thomas Pynchon in some ways, which was extremely flattering. But she said she didn't see any causal relationships between some of the chapters. She didn't understand what the book was about. Um, and so with that in mind, I went back and I spent the next year or two working on another draft and I called her to tell her that it was coming in. <laughs> and when I sent the book out, it came back a week later with a form rejection. Um, so that frustrated me so much that I just stopped writing novels for about five or six years. And then I got back into it through the back door by writing comic scripts for Stephen Bissett's anthology, Taboo, where I started doing a series called Throat Sprockets. Would this have been around the same time from Hell was being published? It's 1988. No, so, you know, I was doing the comics thing, and for some reason I had difficulty getting along with artists. We always had, like, personality clashes. And Steve Bissett finally said, you know, Tim, maybe you should also because my scripts were getting really long and artists were frustrated about how long it was going to take to get their work in print. Um, and so he said, have you thought about doing this as a, you know, a traditional novel? And I thought, well, I, I've given up those dreams. And I think it w during that period when I stopped trying to be a novelist, I sort of found my own voice as a novelist, I wasn't writing like other writers. If you look back at the early stuff, you can see who I was reading at the time. Um, whether it was <laughs> the one that I wrote when I was reading James Joyce is a real, <laughs> it's a real nightmare. <laughs> was this? A, I mean, did you? I was just curious. The prose in your and the in um, the criticism. I mean, it seems like 
were they were these complementing each other were like i mean were these distinct voices you think between your fiction and what you're writing about movies well what i was writing about in in throat sprockets i mean it's on the surface it's about you know it's, it could be a satire of you know what advertising is how advertising you know takes advantage of you seduces you turns you into a different kind of person um but I also took care to make it the story of what happened to the movie going experience over a period of decades. Um, so it started out, you know, in a, in a former movie palace that had turned into a sort of seedy porn theater. And then from that, you go to the shoebox cinemas, then the, uh, uh, the cattle plexes and, and so on and watching things on television. And I also asked the question, what happens to movies? when they don't address a broad spectrum of people in a theatrical experience, when that broadcast becomes so narrow and specific that you can actually begin to build things around individual fetishes. Um, so yeah, in that sense, things that I was picking up from what I was watching were, were being expressed in the fiction. My, my discovering Jess Franco's movies were very important to the writing of, of Throat Sprockets. He and his wife Lena Romay are, are are in the book in some respect, as you know, disguised as other characters. What was a uh, what was Video Watchdog like in the '90s? I mean, was it uh, was it a big success or? Initially, I mean, I I recently was doing some some cleaning in the attic, and I found a box uh, that was full of Xeroxes and tear sheets pertaining to our first couple of years of the magazine, and and there was. Uh, I remember we used to go to the to the P.O. box and it would be crammed full of correspondence, uh, people ordering subscriptions, people sending us really dense letters full of information that they had, had acquired. In fact, there was a lot of correspondence from people that we couldn't print because it was just too long. Um, so there was a, there was a huge response to it initially. Um, and, uh, you know, as it as it went over, as it, as it continued through time, I think that there was always the sort of same core audience. Um, there would be some people that would drift away. There would be new people drifting in, depending on what we, what we had on the cover, you know, the, the, the circulation could go slightly up or down. But I think we finally got to the point where I realized that we weren't selling enough on newsstands anymore to really care about what we put on the cover being a commercial thing. We could put anything we wanted there and our numbers would stay consistent. I remember so, the, I, I'll never forget the, uh, you know, I had a uh, walked into, I would go to Nashville a lot for concerts and movies sometimes because Evansville wouldn't have something. And I go into Tower uh, Books or Tower, or Tower Records maybe even. Uh, and uh, there's this little magazine, Video Watchdog, and I said, what is this? And uh, it blew me away. I was like, wow, this, I mean, it was so, and uh, I was not one of those people that came and went. I stayed there on every issue because uh, there was always something, every single issue that you guys would uh, throw in there. But what I loved about it, too, was that you would, uh, you put Kozlowski in there, you'd put Tati, uh, Buster Keaton, uh, and so you weren't so rigid like other, you know, uh, magazines would be, that that the the the, uh, the parameters would uh, bounce back and forth. Kind of the high low. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, I mean, and I, that's a question I have, Tim, and I, and I don't know if we've ever talked about it before, but we probably have. But the uh, the acceptance of 
all the levels of film, low, high, middle, brow, low, brow. I mean, it seems like there's this group of film fans that the lines have totally blurred. There's no boundaries. And you, you, know, you, you come across other fans that are, are just as rabid as you are in cinema, but they, they, you start naming off certain names or certain things and then you lose them. Um, and so, and then if you would show them something like, like show them a Baba or show them a Jess Franco, and they would look at this and say, well, this is like Ed Wood. This is a bad film. Or this, mm. they, they, they don't see what you're seeing or how you see it. So how do you explain that phenomenon of that kind of per- perception of a Jess Franco? Because, you know, Franco's not a, uh, you know, he's not the easiest guy to jump into. I, I mean. Uh, no, and you can jump in and, and if you, depending on the movie that you go to first, I mean, they completely color your feelings about him, against him. <laughs> Um, and in fact, when I first discovered Franco, I mean, I, I saw a, a lot of, of his worst movies. Um, so what kept you was, going back, you think? Um, what happened, why I went back was because I went to a local video store and noticed that there were a lot of his movies there in these big boxes from Wizard Video. And, you know, I was looking at these things and, and I've always been particularly interested in, in European horror because it. It's just the most cultured form of horror. Um, they have, you know, interest in sculpture and painting. I mean, it's inculcated into all the filmmakers that that make horror movies there. And so the culture becomes expressed in their work in ways you never see happen in American films. Um, and even to lesser degrees in, in British films. But um, with... Uh, I, so, I, so I had all these big boxes and they had like names like, like Jess Frank... You know, or or Jay Franco. You know, it's like he, he was hiding behind a different name on everything. There was J. A. Laser, who who I decided must be a a, a mask for Jess Franco, and and turned out to be more or less because that was Virgin Among the Living Dead, which Franco directed most of, but Jean Roland directed some additional zombie footage for that version. Um, so it. it it gave me a sense of movies not only as as art and personal expression, but as a kind of commercial subterfuge um, that uh, you know people could hide behind different guises to say different things, or, or so that they didn't have to represent themselves. And you could tell from a pseudonym which movies were of particular importance to the director, as opposed to another pseudonym. Um, it was all like a secret coded language. And also, you got to remember back in those days that uh, it was a great time because people were actively trading tapes from weird sources. They would make friends overseas and would trade, you know, different uh, region uh, videotapes and things that would come off remote television stations. And so it was like a big swapping thing. It was all like a it was very countercultural. Uh, compared to what was very comparable to what was going on in the late '60s with like bootleg albums, would you, would you say that you and do you enjoy watching Franco films, or are you more or it's a, it's more of an intellectual game with you? Or I mean, uh, it all depends on the individual title. I mean, there are some that you know I just un, unabashedly admire, um, and there there are some that are. Uh, like one that I sort of unabashedly admire would be uh, Eugenie de Sade. Um, 
some of these really small films that he made uh, for almost no money that he that he would he would actually make pictures made from money that he took from other projects, just the crumbs that he took from other projects and then made a really small personal film in between. Um, Venus and Furs was always one of my, my favorites. But now when I look at it, I see that it's a very compromised film because it was subjected to a lot of post-production work. It was given a different music track. And there's this one Italian uh, version that was taped off of Italian television of a movie called Paroxysms, uh, which seems to be the closest to Franco's original form of the film. Um, and when you see it, it has a lot more to do with jazz music. Um, it's not as padded up with footage from the Mardi Gras. And, uh, you know, it's it's more of a personal expression. So, so those films I really admire. Um, there, there are some like his, his zombie movies that are, that are really just trashy. He's just, uh, you know, he, he made these movies toward a more popular release so that he could take a little money off to the side like Cassavetes and make the more personal projects on his own. But you have to immerse yourself in them to distinguish between them. Uh, he's, he's many different kinds of filmmaker. That was part one of the interview with Tim Lucas alongside guest co-host Ted Haycraft. Check in next week for part two. Uh, in the meantime, hope you all are staying in, staying healthy, um, watching some good movies, and I'll see you. Ne- I'll be here next week.